Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, I have two very special guests. And by special, I mean, uh, when I meet parents of children who've been diagnosed with ADHD, to me, that's very special, especially when they've had an experience where now they've been tracking uh, the progress after the diagnosis, after the labeling. And in the case of my special guests, after uh, their son taking medication. So uh, I want to welcome Vanessa and Troy to the podcast. Hey, guys. Hi, Ryman. Hi, Ryman. Thanks for having me. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for being here all the way from Australia. Yes. Um, One of my favorite accents. (laughs) And uh, your son, Gile, is who we're talking about today. And uh, I appreciate your vulnerability and your openness to share your story. And I know it's going to make a difference for other parents uh, that have a child that got recently diagnosed or if they're struggling right now with side effects from medication or side effects such as low self-esteem, depression, and so forth. We'll talk about that. But I just want to start out by asking you guys, how did this all happen? How old was Gile? Uh, How did he get uh, uh, sort of pinned as ADHD? And and what happened? Maybe you can just uh, start from there. Well, um, initially, like at a younger age, um, I used to actually been involved in a lot of Giles sporting um, extracurriculum stuff, whether it be soccer, cricket, all those sorts of things. And I would either manage or coach, you know, some of those sides. And I'd come home to Vanessa and say, he's really um, challenging me and, you know, just being pretty much um, like so annoying with his actions and just, complete um, distraction that it it was causing more distraction for the other kids in the group. And I'm sure Vanessa at that time would think that um, I was overboard with it. Um, But later on in um, when he was in high school, he was coming home really tired and we decided that we get a blood test because he was falling asleep in class. So we took him, I, I actually took him to the doctor and got a blood test done and all his um, results come back normal. Um, so we were then told by the doctor we should go and see a pediatrician to see if we could get some kind of answers to um, why he was so tired. And so that's when we decided we'd do that and then we ended up finding out at the age of 16 that um, he was high-end ADHD. This was at 16. Yeah. Well, I'm for me, um, I can remember the very, before Giles started school, I don't think Troy or I really noticed anything that made our son stand out any differently to who he was. Uh, we, he was a very happy-go-lucky child, highly intelligent, very, you know, interested in books and reading and, and just absorbing information. 
Yes, he was very energetic, but we didn't know any different. He was our first child. Um, it was when he went to kindergarten, very first day of kindergarten, I was called at the end of the class, uh, Mrs. Fotheringham, uh, Giles is, um, ha has been disruptive today. He doesn't want to engage in the, the classroom activities. Um, and I was just, okay, uh, maybe it's just settling in, period. Well, this, is the, this was the pattern all the way through high school. Giles was constantly being pulled up by teachers on detention, um, criticised for being inattentive, disruptive. So um, I guess we didn't know that he was had ADHD, but we certainly knew that there were issues that were causing him to get a lot of negative attention from school, from us as his parents. Um, and to be honest, it, it came to a head, Giles would have been in around the end of year nine, and he said to me one day, Mum, I'm really, really depressed. Um, I think something is wrong with me um, and I, I think it's ADHD. And he said that himself and I was prepared to not believe that. I, I was um, saying, you know, I don't believe it's ADHD. Um, how can you be sure? He'd been studying apparently, looking up all the information and trying to identify with um, a diagnosis of some sort because he knew he wasn't fitting in. And that was how old was he at that time? That would have been around 15 to 16, yeah. Okay. Um, and to be honest, when he said to me at one point, um, I just want to lay in bed and never get up, I thought, you know what, I'm taking this as serious as ever. Um, whether I agree with it being ADHD or not, I, we have a responsibility to take him to a doctor and at least deal with the depression side of whatever he was going through. Um, so that's where the diagnosis journey started. Um, and the diagnosis was almost immediate, to be honest. Um, there was no, we went to our local GP um, and she said, I'm seeing this as ADHD. And I'm thinking, really, like nothing else? No, no, no other option? Um, straight to a paediatrician who within half an hour to 45 minutes said, yep, tick these boxes, he's ADHD and he's a script for, for a Ritalin. Um, I, I was just, <laughs> I was quite emotional and overwhelmed, to be honest, because it just happened so quickly. And how did you, so the medication was proposed as the solution, as Absolutely. the thing to do first? The, the only solution. Um, and I can't even beat around the bush with that. That's exactly how it was. And I was saying to Troy before this, um, we began this podcast this morning, I, I remember my in my stomach just feeling like this all feels so wrong. Um, I don't know if you call that the mother's instinct or what it was, but I just felt inside this is, this is not sitting with me. Um, but basically my son was pleading with me to help him. Um, the professionals were looking at me as if, what, do you want your child to suffer? Or do you want his life to be manageable? What do you want? Do you want a happy child? How can I question that? Yeah. It was I mean, I totally get it, right? You're there and your son's asking for it. And they, they're the experts. They're the experts. Uh, and they say this is the solution. So so now you, you went against your intuition, right? Because, again, there's experts and your son's asking. So you started taking medication. And, and tell me, how was it at first? And how did he take to it? Uh, what, what changed? 
Uh, we've actually, Roman, it was, uh, we're in a, I suppose, a situation that um, Joel was just about to start senior school year 11 and 12. So for us here in Australia, that's where they get their high school certificate. And um, obviously we were concerned that if we didn't address um, his distraction issues, it would affect his result um, for his HSC. So we, um, like Vanessa was extremely concerned because, you know, as a mother, she was worried that we, we've caught it too late. It might affect his, you know, not only results, but also his um, self-esteem and all of these other things that, that went with it. But um, luckily, well, I suppose initially, we did see some positive results in the way he was able to um, initially start to study and, and stay concentrated while he was at school instead of falling asleep and actually taking in uh, what he needed to to actually progress and get better at different subjects. Um, but one of the biggest mistakes um, that we found out later on that we didn't know was Joel had actually asked the pediatrician about how much medication he should take. And um, alarmingly, she had actually said, whatever you need. <laughs> wow. This is a 16-year-old, whatever you need. Yeah. Wow. And do you feel that was a moment where he started taking more than one pill or more than what his dose was without telling you? I think, as Troy said, it, it initially he he really he expressed it. I feel like I can. I'm on top of things so much better, um, and and it, it did wasn't out of control in any way. Getting through his year eleven and year twelve, um, I again my mother's instinct. He was shaking a lot when he took the pills. He would say to me, "Mum, I feel like I'm going to faint," and that broke my heart because I thought, "What are we putting in you?" Mm. Um, then he, he lost a, a considerable amount of weight. He couldn't eat. Um, but, you know, school was good. And it, yeah. really, we weren't that focused on his actual marks as such. We wanted him to get through feeling like he was achieving it. We didn't want him to feel like, I can't do this. Um, right. So that was more our focus, wasn't it, than the, the actual results. It was more about him getting through. Absolutely, and him being able to understand that you know the effort that he is actually putting in he's going to get the result for because normally that would be a huge struggle um just plainly because he couldn't concentrate yeah so we wanted to we wanted to support that for him but i think um again i can think back to so many mistakes i think we've made throughout this um he applied for university after he finished his hsc and he says now that placed even extra pressure on him because he thought I've gotten through high school and now I've got to do more school. Um, that's when the um, he decided that Ritalin was so wonderful uh, that it could almost make him achieve anything the more he took. Um, so Troy's right. We were in an appointment with his paediatrician, a follow-up appointment, and he said, um, now that I'm doing university, my days are really long, um, you know, so I'm finding that I might need a bit of extra Ritalin each day. And she said, well, that, feel free to take that. 
if your days are longer and you're up for longer than, you know, the regular amount of hours, then you can pop another one in the evening if that's going to help you get your study done. Little did we know that in his brain, immature young brain, naive, trusting brain, he's he's taken that as well. He's the answer. If I need to get things done, I'll just keep taking this medication and I can I can achieve it, what everybody wants me to achieve. Yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I've, you know, for this project myself, I've tried all I've tried Adderall and Ritalin. I wanted to know what it feels like. And mm-hmm. it's powerful stuff. If I don't know if you've tried it, that's a weird question, but no. <laughs> no. I mean, I I have it right there. Like I keep it as a reminder of like, wow, like one of those pills is just like it's like speed. You know, you you yeah. you take it, especially in the case of Adderall, but Ritalin too, and in their own ways, they just they add this, this intensity to the body and the mind. And it's, it's literally addictive such that because when you depend on getting good grades, right. From a pill, how can that be not addictive? Like, like he said, there's more pressure. I need to keep going, you know? So what I'm hearing is that academically during the high school, it worked for him, right? He graduated, he got the grades he needed. And then did he go on to uh, university? Did he start university? He did. Um, How did that go with uh, extra Ritalin? uh, A nightmare. That's when the nightmare began. Um, He only, he was at university for six months only. And within that six months, our son went from somebody we knew to somebody that was completely foreign. We didn't know him anymore. And he was extremely depressed. when you, before you go to the depression, uh, yeah. Troy, Troy, you said somebody you didn't know anymore. Tell me maybe a little bit of like his, his character before and after that you really noticed a big shift. Yeah, uh, before, like Joel has always been like an outgoing, fun, happy, like kid, all growing up. Well, we've got so many great photos of Joel where he's always smiling and happy and, you know, just really vibrant. And that had all just left. Like he was completely, uh, it, it was just a shell. He was just a shell. Like there was no energy. There was no, um, he wasn't vibrant anymore. He was just completely hollow and there was no life in him. It had all been taken away by the addiction and the, and the, um, I think the mental anguish and strain he was under. Was he living at home during uh, uni? Yeah. So you would see him on a daily basis and you really would notice. Um, Absolutely. He, yeah. The sleeping was just phenomenal. So Jar would either be up all night for days on end because um, he was, that's at that point he was building up a music career uh, as well in America. So he was sitting up at night and talking to people in America um, and he could do that for days on end. And we, we didn't know that he was abusing the Ritalin at all at, to the extent that he was. Um and then it would be sleeping for days and days and we couldn't get him out of his bed. Um, I mean, his health, physical health was heartbreaking. His lips were just always cracked. His skin was peeling. He was an absolute mess. And not looking after himself at all. Mm. And you, so he was living at home. He was at university. So he would just take the meds whenever he needed. He had the pills, you know, took care of it. Well, it's funny because I once I started to realise that he was taking too many because he would run out, of course. Um, so then yeah. I would know about it and I would say, why are you running out? 
I took a few more. I had, you know, like the doctor said, I can take them if I need to, I've got assignments. And I'm thinking, no, you're going through far too many. So I said to him, I want to manage your medication. Um, and I did, but he he would rip the house apart when we weren't home to find them. And he always would find them. It doesn't matter wow. where the spots were. He said it was so strong. Yeah. The urge to get it. Um, he said, I would go through every corner of your bedroom, every room, it, wherever they were, he would find them. That's literally like an addict looking for the, the, the meth or the cocaine or, you know, exactly. it's a yeah. similar experience, right? Cause you need it because you're powerless. Right. Um, so the great news is, and again, just uh, uh, repeating that for our listeners that Gile did start, he had an interest in music and he started, you know, he kept his creativity, thank God, right? He, he pushed that forward. And how did that affect, I mean, he was going through these withdrawals and he was not, not well physically, yet he was creating music. How was that balance? It sounds positive, right? That he was able to keep that up, but was that easy for him? I personally, initially, I, you know, because he is our oldest child, um it's always been a learning curve and um he actually used to say to us i'm only up at night because that's when you know the guys in america are awake and so naively we believed that and like understood where he was coming from to build you know start building some kind of um networking and um in the music industry and but the problem was is through those night hours is when he was actually taking Ritalin um, a lot of ridiculous amounts that would allow him to stay up. And I used to actually say to him after a while, you know, you think you're actually being productive and um, you're making all this music, but your brain and body has not had time to rest. If you don't rest your body and your brain, mm -hmm. that productiveness is outweighed by the tiredness. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it, right? Like these medications, they get you really focused. And if you're into music and you're in front of your computer and you're doing stuff, you're so go, 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 go. Right. And then when you run out, it's like, oh no, I need more because I want to finish this song or do this. So that you, we could say that that's the addiction was in, in, in full force there. And now he is, how old was he at the time? That 18? That yes. 18. Yeah. 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 And so, um, Take me through uh, the time when you really had enough, when you were like, okay, this is now an addiction. We got to stop. Something has to change. Uh, well, I'll respond to that because um, our family life was suffering in it really badly. Um, there was a lot of conflict in the home. Troy and I did not know what we were up against. Um, so, you know, we were struggling to try to, understand our son but at the same time think we have two other children who are being impacted by the negativity in the home um and as we were saying we, we couldn't have a relationship with him it was it, we had no positive interactions with dial so it got to the point where it couldn't get too much worse um and we were constantly fighting with him i can't quite think about how it actually came to the point where Giles started to use weed um, because he described it to us that uh, I need to, sometimes I need to be really high to achieve everything that I need to achieve. I pump out all my, all my music, I'm, you know, meeting all those goals, but then I need to sleep and rest. So I take weed 
as a downer, basically. To help me to come back down. Um, so slowly but surely, that became an addiction in itself. Um, but I do recall there was one particular time where, um, you know, it all sort of come to a head and it was over something really basic. Um, like because we'd been, at the time, we were building a house and renting uh, where we were. And we're, you know, Joel would be up all night and he'd sleep all day. And um, basically I asked him to do something that was quite trivial and there was this, you know, just he'd start arguing over the smallest things and, and you know, I lost it and basically yelled at him and said, look, this is ridiculous. You, you can't keep doing this. And, um, yeah, pretty much that's when we decided that we need to sort something out and it was pretty much like the line in the sand. The family couldn't point. take anymore. Mm-hmm. And then what did you do after that? Did you go back to um, a doctor or did you just decide to pull the plug on things? We did take him to the doctor. Um, and this is where I, I find it a little, again, disappointing and frustrating because I went to my GP and, and I will mention we have a fabulous GP. Um, she's a, She's been our doctor for many, many years and um, so I really trust her. But I think she's almost restricted in what she can provide to her patients in terms of alternatives. Um, and I, I went with, I took Giles to her and told her, he admitted I'm, I'm misusing my Ritalin. Um, but even then, I, I cannot recall any real solutions for us. We were just, it was like we needed to work it out. Um, so we ended up taking him to a psychologist. We, we tried all of these things to no avail. Um, he still slowly got worse over the years. It's like we're in limbo. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, well, again, the system isn't set up for that, right? It's just like, oh, you're depressed. Now take a depression, antidepressant. Yep. You have ADHD, take this pill. Side effect, we have that pill, right? So it's hard to get out of that. But I'm glad that Gile admitted it, right? Yeah. Uh, that he stood basically stood for what he did. Now, at that point, uh, what kind of shape was he in? when you went back to the GP and you tried to find another solution, what was his attitude or what was he like at the time? Desperate. Yeah. And, and also quite, um, again, not his personality at all. He's still very much um, subdued and not really happy and interacting with the family, but he also very much almost, um, how can I say, like he, he almost was, justifying it and and saying even with the weed you know weed's not bad for me it's always challenging us and saying I need something can't you understand that I have to be taking something um these days he looks back and he says it all started with the time I started taking Ritalin Uh, that's that's changed my um outlook every single day I feel like I need something every day but I think the weed component um sort of stepped in uh, a lot heavier and more often because Joel actually weaned himself off Ritalin and no longer had taken it. So he was just basically substituting one for the other. Hmm. But we, like he was saying, it was more of a downer for him and Ritalin seemed to be the upper. So when he was off of Ritalin, um, was he not needing an upper anymore? 
it didn't appear so. It seemed like the wheat became the whole. The fo- That was the focus for him. But, um, you know, because he's in the midst of this addiction um, of what, whether it's Ritalin or weed, he, he was quite creative in his assessment or judgment of why he should be taking it. And he would say to us, um, I, I either need it as a downer or it allows me to become more creative with my um, producing and songwriting and all that sort of stuff. So it was almost like um, there was like a wall between him, you know, us and him because there was always that in the way. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, fast forward today, how old is Giles? 22. 22. Okay, so that's about four years later, right? Um, What happened after that? After the weed, after he's off of Ritalin, uh, there was was another hurdle. Yes, and that's the one we're in at the moment. Um, So he, he's... It, to his credit, he he does. He's a kind of person that does admit things. He's he's open to admitting there's problems. He also um, will challenge us all the way if he wants to keep doing something. But he he then re- realized because he was coughing a lot. Okay, weed's not fabulous for me now. I'm gonna and he has now substitute substituted that for alcohol. Mm-hmm. He's now um, struggling with an alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, in saying that, I think we're in a good, better place as a family. Uh, Troy and I have worked through some of our own personal issues and I can see that's changing the dynamics in this family. Um, for Gile in particular, I think we've he, he feels a lot more um, comfortable to be himself regardless of still struggling with addiction. We've, we talk a lot and we're a close family. Um, so he's, he's now just... A, said that he will go to rehab. He's about to go to rehab in a few weeks' time to try and really get on top of this once and for all um, and hopefully be able to live a life without the need of a substance to to just function, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without having a crutch, right? Because um, yeah. the dependency definitely started with Ritalin, there's no doubt. Um, and again, I, I think a lot of listeners... You know, sometimes I get criticized. People say, well, that's not true. Uh, These drugs are not addictive when taken as prescribed by a doctor. And obviously this guy abused it. The point is it's an addictive substance, right? Some people may not abuse it, but it is scheduled two in the United States. It's there. It's there with meth and cocaine. It's the same uh, schedule. That means it's the same addictiveness that comes with it, right? And yeah, so and Joel has actually alluded to that and told us that on numerous occasions. He did. He knows. Yeah. He knows too. Yeah. 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 And how is it with alcohol now? Like alcohol is a different beast, right? Because uh, you can smell it. Well, for the most part, right. If someone's drunk, uh, you have to have alcohol in the house or go get it somewhere. Uh, you know, how has that been? Uh, how did you discover it? Did he tell you? Did you find out? Well, he's not really good at covering up his tracks. Um, so he, the bottles are pretty evident. Um, he's not a, an aggressive person in his nature in general, so he doesn't, alcohol doesn't change him in that regard at all. He pretty much hibernates, and that's how I know it's going on. He'll go in his room, lights are off, doors shut, and drinking and watching whatever he watches. Um, so, that yeah, it's pretty obvious 
Mm-hmm. And we're trying, we're not um, approaching that with him. We're leaving it because we know he's got rehab coming. We're just letting him, um, you know, as long as he's safe, of course, just let it run its course for now. Yeah. And um, I just want to go back. So, so as I've been doing this podcast and this project, um, we've come across the, the theory or the, the hypothesis that I'm starting to cling on more and more, which is something happens in a child's life, some kind of event in a family, right? So I just wanted to ask you if you're open to speak about that. Was there anything that you can see back from the moment you were pregnant until this happened with, with Gile, were there uh, uh, things that could have affected his nervous system, something Absolutely. that happened? Yeah, definitely. Um, Troy and I, without going into our personal details. Um, yeah, as we, much as you're comfortable sharing, it's, yeah, I know I'm it's not, very personal. Are you okay with it, Troy? Yeah, no yeah. Um, Troy and I both have come from very dysfunctional families. Um, we've grown up in alcoholism, um, addictions of all sorts ourselves when we had our first child we didn't realize how damaged we've been scarred we both were from our own childhoods and I think when you have your very first child any insecurities um, all of those things come to the surface and I think for us as a couple it was full-on at that point I had a lot of problems with breastfeeding with Gile um like serious painful issues and I know that I wasn't a relaxed mother I was a very upset mother I ended up with depression um so when I really do think back to the first six to 12 months of his life uh it wasn't ideal um and he maybe would have felt a bit he would have sensed that and he probably wasn't feeling as attached to his parents as he should have yeah um, I think fast forward to um, and Joel would even admit this himself that, you know, once he'd actually got to school, um, he was this kid that was just so lovable and likable and um, and as he has always been, he can, he can be quite loud at times. And I think that drew um, a lot of negative attention to him because yeah. he was either distracting others in class or kids would make fun of him for that reason. And he feels like a lot of his scars and trauma are based around a lot of his school years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's that then gets added on top of any family trauma, right? Uh, One of our experts, Gabor Mate, uh, who's a specialist in in addiction um, and, and trauma, he said that, you know, if you have a sensitive child, as, as as soon as being in the womb, right? If there's uh, um, if there are events that impact the mother's nervous system, that gets transferred to the child's nervous system. And if that child is very highly sensitive, then um, that could be enough. That could be enough that the child comes out of the belly uh, un- feeling unsafe. And yeah. now, let's say you're dealing with your trauma and your upbringing, uh, transgenerational stuff that's unsafe. Then you go to school. And you're trying to be yourself. You get put down for being too loud. That's unsafe. There's all these things that suddenly you, you're just not comfortable in your skin. You can't focus or be in the present moment of life, right? Um, I truly believe that. And it sounds like your story confirms that a bit, that there, there could have been, this is not to blame parents. We do the best we can. Yeah. But this is to say we have these these nervous systems, especially of the little ones, are so sensitive, and we ignore that. 
science completely ignores that because obviously we wouldn't be giving them a schedule two stimulant uh, uh, if we really believed that that could have an impact on a child, right. To, to make them depressed and all that stuff. So don't want to talk around that too much, but so what is your, um, looking back, what, what, what could you have done differently or what would you do differently today to share that with other parents? Um, and where do you see this going in the future? Well, um, like you, Roman, we're not against uh, medication as such um, with ADHD, um, but a lot of parents need to understand it needs to be very closely monitored um, for the purposes of what we've spoken about with Giles. Um, I, I personally, from my own experiences and Giles now, I would suggest to parents that before taking any kind of medication, at least look at your own background and your child's and try to think about if there has been any trauma because I think based on a lot of, as you were saying earlier, um, addictions and over-medicating in whatever way, that trauma is covered up um, by the substances. So yeah. I think if parents could at least be open to the fact that you know, seeing someone for these uh, traumatizing situations in their past, it might alleviate or even reduce the amount of medication they need to take. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, I I, I would agree 100% with that. And uh, Vanessa, how about you? How do you, looking back and again, not blaming you as a parent, uh, you did what you did, right? You did the best you could. But what would you advise other parents? Like if you could go back and change it, what would you do differently? I tell you, I've, there are a lot of regrets um, and one of them I, I'm really trying and I'm not blaming myself because I know that where we were at, we did our best and we've always loved our, our child. Um, I do feel a wish that we had to let him be himself, not looked at him as if um, you're loud so there's something wrong, you're not sitting still so there's something wrong. I wish we had just accepted that that's who he is. Um I wish I had a list, listened to my gut instincts at the points of time, like the giving the medication, the diagnosis. I would have liked to have explored other options well before medication was shoved on him. I would have liked to have sought out psychology, like Troy said, ex exploring whether there, there is trauma in his life, um, you know, occupational therapy, or whatever, other, other options before the medication came along. Um, throughout my own journey now in terms of dealing with childhood trauma, a number of psychologists have told us, told me that ADHD symptoms can appear when a, in a person with, that has experienced trauma. It can mm. look like ADHD symptoms. So the thought of thinking that somebody may have trauma and we're giving them a pill um, because we're calling it that, are we sure? We need to be sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a big overlap. I talked to Peter Levine, who's a big uh, trauma expert, and uh, there was about a 95% overlap of, of uh, trauma symptoms and ADHD symptoms. Yeah. And, you know, PTSD essentially yeah. is how we respond to trauma, right? And I think trauma has a bad rep when somebody, when you tell someone, do you have any trauma? They go, oh, no, 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 no. But there's so many, uh, Gabor Mate calls it the little T traumas. That could be a, a bad uh, delivery, like birth. You know, it could be uh, uh, a child 
uh, that's taken away from the parents for five days after it's born because of medical issues. All these things are traumatic, right? But we think of trauma as a brain injury or as a, uh, an abuse, right? Or some shock to the system. But there's all these little things that can impact a child. And it's just, I agree with you, like to, to misdiagnose a child with ADHD and give them a pill when maybe there's just some trauma that needs to be processed and healed is pretty, um, it, I don't want to say criminal, but it's, it's you know, it's borderline uh, abuse mm-hmm. to give yeah. this to children. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were saying too, I mean, you just um, made me think how, you know, how trauma impacts. I think as humans, we need to actually understand a little better um, and not judge people based on something they can't see. Like, as they, they say, like, you can't see ADHD as such unless it's in the behaviour or trauma within people if they've got PTSD. Um, and if you say you've got trauma, people look at you differently and that shouldn't be the case. It should be more the case that, okay, well, I don't have to be intrusive to find out what that trauma is, but at least give people the understanding that um, even though they can't see it, it still affects people. Yeah, I totally agree. I think everybody has trauma. Every human being has trauma. We're all addicted to something at times, you know, shopping uh, or even just avoiding crowds or there's, is that coffee? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a stimulant, right? You take the right amount of coffee, you're going to be jittery. Um, They actually in Colombia, I believe in other South American countries, they give children, uh, young children that are a little too hyper uh, coffee. They give them a little coffee because it's the same thing. It just balances it out, right? Um, But yeah, I I agree. I think we all have some form of trauma. This is what life is about. You're born and then you have some hurdles put in your way and then you get over them and you figure them out and, right? Nobody gets away scot-free. So I would agree with that. Now, um, with Gile, so he's going to rehab soon, which is amazing. Um, I, I wish you all the best with that. And uh, he's going to continue his music, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. With his label. And what is what is what does he see in his future? I know there's a, a possibility we may have Jylon in the future, which if that works out would be amazing. I'm sure he has a lot to share. Uh, what, what is his his plan for the future? He will definitely be pursuing his um, music career because he lives and breathes it. Um, so he's a producer, a music producer and an artist. And um, once he gets on top of these personal issues, I feel his creativity will even open up more um, and that'll be his path. He, he also wants to be an advocate for children with ADHD who have been um, in a similar position to, to himself. He's very passionate about um, mis- medication being forced on children at a young age. He describes for himself when he is a dad one day, which he would love to be, um, he certainly wouldn't put give his child medication. Um, he said that would be something they could decide as an adult if they, they wish to take that on. Um, but he's very passionate about that now. So I think that with his music, um, there'll be a message he would like to get out there as well, I think, in that. That, that's amazing. Maybe uh, maybe Giles gets to uh, uh, write a song for for our documentary. You know, that'd be cool. Oh, oh I'm sure he'd love that too. You know? Yeah, and you would too. <laughs> with, with a good message uh, around ADHD. I mean, hey, 
that um, could be part of his healing. Yeah. yeah. There Absolutely. we go. Um, yeah. As Vanessa said, Joel would love to be like a real advocate for, um, you know, kids being understood and 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 having ADHD, ADHD um, like recognised and more open. Like it's just accepted. Accepted, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's a really, um, like most people I'm sure just think when you say ADHD, they just think annoying kids. Yeah. Yeah, they're basically yeah, like, like the... Creative. As soon as I hear it, I think, oh, you've got a creative one there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like I agree with Troy. It's like ADHD kids sounds like a splinter, you know, like you're just like yeah. trying to get rid of it. It's like, ah. Um, it's interesting because um, me too, when I hear ADHD, I hear like, oh, somebody who's misunderstood, somebody's uh, trying to get through some traumatic, shaking something in the nervous system, and then they're going to be very creative, very intelligent, you know. Um, but it's But recently I had a an expert on, on one of my podcasts. And he, uh, I asked him, I said, do you feel that these labels such as ADHD are actually good for kids? And, and cause I said, I believe labeling them with ADHD is a very disempowering thing. And, and ultimately I think damaging. And he's like, Oh, I, I completely disagree. Uh, he said, you know, it's the medical field needs it. And, da, 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 and these kids and, da, da. and I said, look, um, go ask, a hundred people in the street, um, if that are single, if they would want to date a disordered person, no one would say yes. They'd be like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, cause the word yeah. disordered doesn't have a good rap. No. And so how can kids possibly think of themselves as, Oh, it's just a thing I, I have. I'm dealing with it. It's all good. I'll work it out. It's more like, Oh no, your brain doesn't work like a normal brain. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah damaged yeah. right that's what i love about your podcasts I, I i got excited when i found them because i love um you know show me a normal brain show me a normal person and then we're really really got something to compare with because really there isn't there, there isn't, isn't. And, and no that's great and i'm glad you found me and i really appreciate you reaching out i always uh when i get you know emails or texts from people it's just so great because I could do this all day long and I will, but it's nice to see that there's a resonance, right? People are yeah. responding and interacting. Um, and I agree with you, like normal, what does that mean? Like normal is a norm. It's like a scientifically created flat kind of norm. And who wants to be normal? I don't know. It's boring. I always say that to my children. It's and boring to be normal. It's funny because Vanessa and I were just saying this morning that, you know, going back and like, if there's things that I, I suppose we could change, it would be based around schooling. Um, yeah. In, in, in the fact that. Based on what? Sorry. Around schooling. Oh, schooling. Yeah. yeah. A school that suited him better rather yeah. than the other way around. But because they always want kids and the education system wants kids to fit into this perfect little box. And kids aren't like that. And kids with ADHD. Um, as you said, they're talented, they're very creative. They need to express that. And we always felt, I suppose, a little pressure from the education system in a lot of regards to keep him within that box mm -hmm. instead of questioning why aren't they stimulating him in, in, in the way he needs. Yeah. Yeah, because you could say if, if a lot of kids are traumatised or have experienced trauma and they go to school, the only way to really accept them and cater to them is to sort of work with it rather than make them wrong. Right. But we don't have, 
the class sizes are too big. I'm sure it's similar in Australia, right? Yeah. The the teachers often are kind of lazy, not all teachers. I mean, I'm aware of that, but when I say lazy, I just mean they're, they're taught to teach this way and you got to teach that this way. And they just do that. They, They don't go out of their way to embrace and perhaps support a child that sticks out. Right. And they can't, I mean, they have, there's not enough time. They don't have the funding. You know, so this, I agree with you, Troy. The school system is definitely a huge culprit there in in uh, jacking up the numbers of diagnoses that we see because that's where kids get singled out, right? Correct. So uh, sounds sounds like that's what happened. Hmm? I recall there was one particular teacher. Um, Anyway, we went to a, a parent-teacher interview with Giles and Vanessa and I had gotten to the point at that stage where, you know, we, we've seen Giles have all of these, um, you know, issues based around school and how it was affecting his confidence and all of this stuff. And like you said, not all teachers are, you know, lazy and all of that sort of stuff, but Giles had told us this particular teacher was boring and that is why he was easily distracted in class. He said he just reads from the book and he's monotone and he doesn't like stimulate him or get him involved in any way, shape or form. And I remember this teacher actually saying as such to me in this parent-teacher interview. And I, by this stage, had had enough because I thought, Jolly's trying his hardest to be something he's not and you're very quick to point out that he isn't falling into line the way you would like him to. So that's when I questioned, what are you doing to stimulate him or make it so that he's not going to be distracted and therefore interrupt the class so he can then be part of it? Yeah, that's and true. It was quite odd. There was no real response because they're normally used to people falling in line. Yeah. Yeah, and and in the United States, at least the majority of the teachers, I think it's like seventy five percent are are women, and you know, women or girls are different in the classroom. They're a bit more obedient. They listen. They get their work done. They're not as they're not wired to be like boys, where they need to constantly move and go outside, and you know, and so of course, as a as a teacher, as a woman in the classroom, the boys stick out. You know, and there's a reason why there's more boys with ADHD than girls. It's not a coincidence. And I'm not blaming female teachers, um, but it is it would be interesting to see what if we had one of each in a classroom, you had a man and a woman, kind of like a set of parents that are balancing, you know, each other out and pay attention to the kids. I think it could be a different environment. Maybe, you know, but um, a complete overhaul. I I would love to see even. regular breaks for children to be able to, okay, because Gile has explained that being in class was physically painful to sit for hours on end. He said, I, I, I could feel my body actually in pain. Yeah. To, and uh, to think that maybe, you know, regular breaks where they can go and do, whether it's music or running around or what other, bring in other options for them to release that, that tension. It- isn't that ridiculous that we have a, a child who's saying physically it's painful for me to be in the classroom and we go, oh, well, there's something wrong with you. No, that particular body can't do this. So what can, how can we support that child, right? But we don't yeah. do that. That's right. And that's it's ridiculous. to see change. 
Well, I'm excited. Uh, again, Giles is welcome anytime. If he's already thinking of being an ADHD advocate, I would be delighted to have a conversation with him when the time comes. You keep me posted. Yeah. Um, but I wish him and you, of course, uh, a really successful rehab. I know that's hard to go through, uh, but you seem uh, just very supportive. And uh, I want to acknowledge you for everything you've done for Gile and, and for your family. Um, to, to help sort of bring bring a, a peace to the family, bring connectedness and fulfillment, right? It's not easy. And you, you two seem to have done a lot of work. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, that's been important. Absolutely. And I think for the, the, the family itself, um, one thing... We're setting that example. Yeah, we're setting that example. But also I feel that um, initially um, I didn't, truly understand ADHD um, and you know in the, the last oh, I don't know probably six seven months or so like instead of actually you know working against it or having questions about it I, I try not to anymore I just try to now both of us do um, but I'm just saying it for me because I know that in, in my past I've um, questioned certain things and and not blamed but more just put it out there as to how how does how is this the way it is but instead of doing that and creating more tension i'm just letting that go and and trying to just support joel now and let him work it out for himself until he gets the help he needs yeah and i i think you know when i say i wish more parents did what you did uh, i really mean that in a sense that, um, you know, if, if we can honor our children for who they are and, and reduce the amount of anxiety, stress and worry about the future and that they're going to have to turn out and be successful and, you know, not fall out of the system, that whole fear, that pressure, I think causes a lot of parents to just grab the pill and go. And uh, it's I wish that more more parents would stop and, uh, and and I know they will listen to your story or to our podcast and hopefully kind of go like, wait a minute, maybe we need to just kind of let them unfold for a while, right? Because now there's kids three years old on ADHD medication, three years old. And wow. it's scientifically proven that until the age of 11, being impulsive, it's not something kids can manage. Their brain, the brain science shows they can't yet uh, not be impulsive. So yeah. we medicate them though for impulsivity starting at three when in fact we should wait till they're eight, nine, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it breaks my heart to see that we just ignore that for, for profits, for gain of pharmaceuticals, you know? Um, um, have I got a moment just to add another point, um, Roman? Please. I, I, yeah. Along the journey, I joined a, an ADHD support group. I won't make mention of which one. Um, for my own benefit to try and, you know, collect up a lot of information and, and familiarise myself with the condition. Um, and one at one point there was a post made about um, medication and how parents are saying, one one person asked, you know, how many people are using medication and, and is anybody noticing any negative um, consequence of, of starting it? And I, I was very careful about what I said, but I did mention that my son has struggled and just roughly this journey. Um, the moderator of the group had threatened to kick me off. She, they said, you have no right to come on here. 
and make parents think that their child's going to become uh, addicted to drugs because they use them. So if you mention this again, you're going to be out. Wow. So I was like, I'm out. I'm off. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, you don't need to kick me off. Um, there's, there's just no, no tolerance for it. There's mm. a lot of resistance. Yeah. So yeah, the message is to just try to challenge people to think a little differently, just think outside what is being shoved at us. That's um, thanks for mentioning it. I had a similar experience in two groups because I did it for research and I had often questioned people uh, blindly just buying information and I would just ask questions. And then I got a text or a message yeah. saying, please do not question uh, members uh, stand on medication. And I said, well, I'm really interested. Like, yeah, I want to know, like, how yeah. did it go? What are you doing? Why are you choosing that? And, you know, and, and I got right away that this, this is already slanted. They're already, their minds are made up. So you can't yeah. come in there, question it, you know? And they're saying it's an open group. No, it's not. It's, this is the way that we see it. We believe medication is the answer. And if you don't, you're out. And I thought, well, this group's not for me. Yeah. So, mm. Good for you. I like that you're putting down the law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know? Well, guys, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, again, thank you for being open and vulnerable to share your story and your strength. Um, I know good things will come of this, and we, um, we're we going to continue the dialogue because, again, in the future, we'll, we'll talk to Gile, and, and I'm, I'm excited for, for you and him to report a success story, you know, because there's hope, you know. And so uh, I wish, uh, well, I should say, I know lots of parents are going to get value from this uh, podcast. So thank you for, for making yourselves available. Thank you for having, having us. us. Yeah, thanks for having us.